Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. So we've been doing this little sub-series called Sex and Pride as we've been working through the chapters uh, 5, 6, 7, and 8 of 1 Corinthians and, uh, and we're going to continue in that today. I want to share a message with you entitled Sex and Marriage. Sex and Marriage, all right? So we're going to talk a little bit about sex. We're going to talk a bit about marriage. I'll talk to some unmarried people as well. Can I just see a show of hands? How many of you are unmarried here today? All right. While you have your hands raised, just look around, right? It's your opportunity right now. Single, ready to mingle, all right? Um, You are welcome to join our young adults ministry. If you're under 40, I guess, um, you can still come through. Maybe maybe God will do something. All right, but we've got a lot of unmarried people here today. We've got a lot of married people here today. And there are certain ways for us to think, certain ways for us to believe, certain things for us to know in both those situations, those phases of life, those uh, relationship statuses uh, that we have. But I want to start off today, if you have your Bibles here, by going to Genesis chapter number two, right? Right in the beginning of your Bible. Uh, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to bring a physical Bible. It is just so awesome. Um, I was encouraging our leadership collective students this past uh, month to, to bring Bibles, to get a Bible. And I made this commitment to them. I said, if they mark their Bibles up, in other words, they write in it, they underline, they highlight, they go crazy to the point where the Bible is now unreadable. I would commit personally to buying them a new Bible, right? So don't be afraid. I don't know yet if I want to make that commitment to the whole church. Um, But maybe, maybe. Let's see. If you bring me your Bible and you've marked it up to that point, uh, I'll get you another Bible. Help me, Jesus, financially, right? So, But I'm trusting that God is going to stir something, a love for the Scriptures and how it speaks and how it changes and how it moves in your own heart, right? So Genesis Chapter number two, right in the beginning, this is where God creates all things. I heard somebody say this week that the most important words that God has ever said, that the Bible has ever said, that have ever been spoken about the topic of sex are these four words. If I ask you, what are the four most important words ever spoken about sex, right? I heard somebody say these four words, in the beginning, God. He's the creator. He's the one who put all things into motion. He's the one who who designed sex, who gave us a vision for what it was supposed to be, what it was supposed to accomplish, what it was supposed to do on the inside of us. God is the one who created human relationships to represent something like the relationship he has with us. It's reflected in how we love one another. And so those are some of the most important words ever spoken. So we'll go to Genesis chapter number 2 and verse 18. We know that God created Adam. We know that God created animals. We know that that Adam was naming the animals and tending to the garden. But Adam experienced loneliness, not having a suitable partner for his own life. Some of you are like, that's me, God. I identify with Adam. I feel that. You know, I, I get that. I get that feeling. Fear. Some of the guys, I get that feeling. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. A woman, literally that word just coming from a, a person, a mankind with a womb. So if you're not sure if you're a man or a woman, it's quite a simple answer. Do you have a womb? If you do, you're a woman. Okay, you got it? I know that our culture is getting that confused at the moment. Then the man said, so listen to this. First of all, God says it's not good that man should be alone. I'm creating woman as a suitable partner for him. And then as he brings, as God brings Eve towards Adam, the man responds. Then the man said, this is at last 
bone of my bones. He recognizes in this moment, Adam recognizes that the woman is a part of me. She, there's something, there's a deep connection there that I can recognize instantly as God brings her towards me. There is no other relationship on earth that could be as important as this relationship. This, this what God is feeling, what, what Adam is feeling in this moment as God brings Eve towards him. This is the helper, the helpmeet, the partner that I have been waiting for. She is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. Something supernatural. That's talking about marriage. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's what we get to experience in the context of marriage. A sexual relationship, sexual intimacy, without the guilt, without the shame, without any of the baggage that so much of our world experiences in their sexual relationships right now. They were both naked and were not ashamed. I'm going to pray for us for a minute, and uh, we're going to dig into this scripture a little bit this morning. Father, we just thank you so much today that we can, can just sit at your feet, Lord. Lord, that we can humble our own hearts, humble our own minds, Lord God, just switch off the voices of the world and the influence of our culture right now and hear what your word would say to us. Father, we pray that it wouldn't just be a sermon from a pastor, but it would be your Holy Spirit speaking your word, your truth, your freedom to every heart. We thank you, God, that we can humble ourselves and be shaped, be washed, be renewed in our thinking by your word. We thank you, God, for healthy marriages in this place, healthy singleness in this place, healthy relationships in this place as we pursue your best for our lives. We thank you, God, for, for speaking into these important areas of our lives in order to help us, Lord God, live the way you've designed us to live. We give you all the glory for that this morning, all the praise and all the honor. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen, amen. So, question to start off with. Have you ever been driving along in your car and had your car break down while you were driving? Anybody ever have a car break down while you were driving, right? So this has happened to me, uh, and I want to relay kind of a story of the one time my car broke down kind of in a precarious position that I was driving in, a, a spot that I was driving in. But, you know, I, I, I couldn't wait. Like many teenagers, high school, high schoolers, I couldn't wait to get my license, right? And uh, just before I turned 18, my dad got me my first car. It was a white Mazda Etude, like a 1.2 or a 1.3 liter Etude with gray cloth seats and all plastic interior, and I couldn't be happier, right? I absolutely loved that simple Mazda Etude, and, um, and I loved the freedom of being able to have my own car, have a license, and be able to just go where I wanted to go, right? That's something that when you're, when you're coming towards the end of high school, you can't wait for. Unfortunately, uh, I was born in February, on the 17th of February, and so that meant that for the most of my matric year, I could just drive a car to school. I also didn't realize that it was going to mean that I was going to drive my three siblings around as well. My parents hadn't informed me of that one. But, uh, but my birthday was on the 17th of February, and in my 18th year, that was a Sunday. And I was disappointed about the fact that I couldn't go and get my license on the morning of my birthday. That's how keen I was. So weeks in advance, I booked for the Monday, the 18th of February. And so at 7.32 a.m. on Monday, the 18th of February, 2002, I had my license, right? I only missed out like 24 hours of like eligibility without a license. I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to take any more than that. And I remember that feeling of having my own car and just being able to, to drive around and uh, what a day that was. And, and for most of high school, I was single, right? Primarily because I was having too much fun in high school to worry about girls, okay? I was like, I'm not going to complicate my life at this point. High schoolers, that's some good advice for you, right? And so I didn't really date much in high school. Um, I hung out with my friends, enjoyed sport, I enjoyed school. And uh, towards the end of high school, now I've got a license. Things are a little different now. You know, I've got mobility, I've got options. And so that next Sunday at church, at youth, 
I met a girl and I asked her, where, you know, where do you live? And she said, Pretoria. I said, not a problem. I have a license. I have a car. Give me your address. There wasn't Google Maps or pins or locations or anything like that, but she just gave me an address. I had to look it up in a book. Um, it was old school. And so, you know, I was able to expand my horizons uh, in that way. And, and I want to just also say, just I wanted to note here, to not do what Ryan, who isn't here this morning as far as I can see, but not do what Ryan did when he was dating Kelly, uh, which is to park his GTI out in the road and rev until she came out. All right, don't, just, that's just some free relationship advice. Don't do what Ryan did, although somehow it worked for Kelly. Um, but one Friday afternoon, after rugby practice, I wanted to go and see this girl that I now had started seeing. And so I jumped in my car, and uh, I was driving to Pretoria. And I'm driving in the fast lane. It, you know, there's a lot of traffic on a Friday late afternoon uh, going to, to, back to Pretoria. And so I'm driving in the fast lane, and all of a sudden, my car just goes completely dead. Like, all the lights are off. The engine is shut off. Nothing is running anymore. And I'm, power steering's gone. And the car's just dead. And so I just slowly veer off onto the tiny, narrow emergency lane on the side of the fast lane, and I park my car there, and I have no idea what has happened to my car. At that point, a little bit later, uh, the JMPD arrive, and they stop the entire highway. Sorry to everybody driving home that day, but this guy's car has died on the wrong side of the highway. And so they literally stopped the highway, all four or five lanes, and help me push embarrassingly in front of an audience of like five to 10 cars that can see what's going on, help me embarrassingly push my car across the road onto the safety of the other side of the highway. And so here I'm sitting, I was gonna go and see this girl, I was looking forward to this Friday night, and now here I'm sitting on the wrong side of the highway with a car that's completely dead, and all I can do is phone a tow truck to come and, and tow my car away. And so eventually a tow truck arrives, it's a flatbed, and they're about to take my car and pull it up onto the flatbed. And I'm just making sure I've got all my stuff. And then I did, out of a force of habit, something that I think most millennials today would have zero context for. But back in the day, right, when we had cars, not all car keys had buttons on them, okay? You couldn't lock and unlock with a button on your key. You actually had to put the key in the door. Sounds insane, I know. But in the door and around the little lock, there was always little scratches. Because you, if you miss, you know, if it's late at night or whatever, you miss, you scratch the car. So you had to put the key in the door and then lock the car. But if you wanted to avoid scratches, you did the lift and lock. Anybody remember lift and lock? You lock it inside, you lift the handle, and you close the door. Anybody do that? Anybody remember those days, lift and lock days? All right. The problem, the problem with that is if you've left your keys inside of the car. So I've got everything Tow truck is here, they're about to pull the car, my handbrake's on everything, I lift and lock, and I go, wait, where's my keys? And I look through the window, Jesus, take the wheel, they're inside. They had to pull that, that car was like, all the way up there, because the handbrake is on, and they got to get this car on there, I had to pay for a locksmith, just madness, right? So frustrating. And I'm sure many of you have had those moments where just, if your car breaks down, nothing's going right, you're late for where you wanted to be, you know, you've locked your keys in and you could just scream with frustration, right? Let me tell you what wouldn't help in that moment is for me to kick the car, right? It definitely would help emotionally. It definitely could relieve some stress. But how many of you know that the issue with the car at that point is not the tire or the door or the fender or any part of the exterior of the car. The issue when your car breaks down is usually connected to something going on on the inside, right? If it's not with the actual engine, it's how the energy of the car is produced or how it's transferred or how the fuel is being injected. It's got something to do with the delivery system of energy and power that actually moves the car. Would you agree with me this morning? Right, so I could get out and as much as it would do me a lot of emotional good to put a dent in the side of the door out of frustration, it's not going to solve the issue. But when it comes to our own lives and our own relationships and, and even our own walk with God, so often we adopt a policy of kicking the external to try and fix the internal. 
fixing things, modifying behavior, uh, changing things, breaking things off, doing whatever we feel we need to do on the outside when the problem really lies on the inside and what we really need is a mechanic to help us figure out where things have gone wrong and to get things working correctly again. That's what we do in our lives. And in this letter and in this chapter, Paul is the mechanic of God. He is the technician of God, saying that you are, you are experiencing brokenness on the outside. The vehicle's no longer moving or functioning correctly. Your relationships is broken. Your, your, your mission is falling apart. You don't know where you are with God. Your relationship with God just feels like a blur. And you're trying to figure out how to fix things on the outside, but really, what I'm going to come and do in chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, and onwards is I'm going to start fixing what's going on on the inside. And this is what Paul does. And he, he does it by showing the church in Corinth, helping them understand what the gospel of God's grace actually is. Like how God's grace works to, to be the engine of our lives. That God's grace is the power of our lives. That God's presence is the fuel. It's the drive shaft. It's everything that drives our lives and moves us forward. The engine of your life is the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit. It's God's presence inside of you. That's the engine. But so much of Christianity has become just kicking the tires. I don't know if you guys, you know, I, I've done some mechanical research, etc., and I can, you know, unplug and replug some things, and, and I can, you know, just do a few things in the engine to make me look like I know what I'm doing. But I'm sure there's many of you like me that pretty much we just open the engine and fiddle and hope it'll help, right? Like we don't always really know what's going on on the inside. On that day, when my car broke down, it was the alternator that had died and gone with, to be with Jesus. That means that there's no power. It doesn't matter how much I change on the outside. It cannot produce energy or e electricity for the car to be able to function. And so everything just shut off. The church in Corinth, similarly, are getting things wrong. And they're getting a ton of stuff wrong on the outside. I mean, their relationships are a mess. But it's not what is primarily wrong. It's not the primary factor. What they're actually struggling, struggling with is not what they're doing, but what they're believing that's wrong. Charles Spurgeon said, right believing leads to right living. You don't live right in order to believe right. You believe right in order to live right. You don't, you don't get yourself sorted out and then come to Jesus. You come to Jesus as you are, and He does that work of grace sorting you out. He's the one that realigns. He's the ultimate technician, the ultimate mechanic at work within our hearts. You see, all of our actions in one form or another stem from some sort of a belief, something that we believe. Nobody just does things completely at random unless you're insane. Everybody has some philosophy that's driving their actions or something they believe that they will be able to derive from their actions. I feel a need. I believe that partaking in this perhaps sexual activity right now is going to fulfill that need. That's a belief. And so what you're pursuing is actually based on belief, not just a physical sense or desire. The church in Corinth, like we spoke about last week, is still living from the outside in, whereas God designed us to live from the inside out. And there's two ways that Corinth did this and two ways that we do it as well. The first one we spoke about last week in my message called Sex and Water. If you haven't heard that message, it's available online on SoundCloud and YouTube um, and on our website. You can go and listen to that and see what we were saying there. But the first thing that everybody does when they feel that they have all kinds of desires and needs that need to be fulfilled and they start stepping out, the first way that we live from the outside in, in other words, we allow our, our physical desires we allow our, our culture, our worldview, all these things on the outside, uh, what the world says to us, to, to instruct us on how to live. And that is view number one, that everything is permissible. So 
since I'm liberated and my life belongs to Jesus, what we do on the outside doesn't matter. That's kind of the philosophy there. And we think, yeah, no, that's definitely wrong. But how many people say, I want to give my life to Jesus and I'll go to church and I'll do it, but they mustn't tell me that I can't live with my boyfriend or with my girlfriend. That now they're overstepping the boundary. It's my life, it's my truth, I'll do what I want to do. Whereas it's not the church telling you to do that. It's, it's your, you have a Bible. You don't even need to take my word for it. You take it and read it and tell me what you think it says. But a lot of people take the scriptures and then they go, no, that's fine. Jesus, I, I accept all the parts where Jesus saved me and loves me and all of that, but the rest, no, I'm, I'm not going to subscribe to that. Right? We, we've seen it on, on television recently with series, you know, these dating shows and, and, and marriage shows and all these kind of relationship reality TV shows. People are like, I'll just have as much sex as I want. Fantasy, fantasy sweet it up, baby. But Jesus still loves me. And it's not wrong. Jesus does still love you. But because he loves you, he has spoken into what a healthy relationship looks like. And it's certainly not what you're professing right now. So the first thing we do is like, we're so beyond this material world that what we do with our bodies, that's just, it's kind of like having a sandwich. My body, my stomach feels hungry. I go, I have a sandwich. I feel better. Like my body feels like it has the desire for sex. I go, I have sex. I feel better. That's how, that's how our world relegates the sanctity of in the beginning God, that he had a design for it. So that's the first thing that we do. In essence, it's licentiousness. I'll do what I want. I won't let the Bible talk into that. I won't let Jesus speak to me. The second way is the opposite extreme. And this is where we believe that holiness and living a holy life comes from the outside. Again, both of those, whether it's licentiousness or legalism, it's saying that from the outside, I'm going to be made holy. So if I do everything right, then I'll be right with God. That is also not what the Bible says. That is a recipe for failure. Anybody who says, I'm just going to be good, doesn't even know how bad they really are. Because it's only people that have tried to be good that know how not good they are. If you've tried, and if you still believe that, no, no, but I can be good, then my answer to you would be, okay, go and try and come chat to me later. Go and try. People believe that righteousness comes from living according to some law that makes us righteous. In biblical terms and philosophical terms, this is known as asceticism, which is in essence just severe religious discipline and piety. I'm going to be very religious. People who believe this kind of thing are often like the Pharisees. They don't, you know, they don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't, uh, you know, go out or watch movies or even speak to people usually. Usually they're quite isolated, right? They, they have this view that, that if I just abstain from the world, then somehow I'll remain clean. Jesus says about these kinds of people, if what they think is light within them is actually darkness, how great is that darkness? In other words, when people are self-righteous, they're as hostile towards God, possibly even more, than people that are just living unrighteously. Because ultimately you're saying, I'm going to be my own savior. I don't need Jesus. So self-righteousness and unrighteousness are the same thing. Neither of them are holy. Neither of them makes us right with God. In other words, people think that what I do makes me holy instead of what I am allows me to act in a way that is holy. See, it's got to start from the inside out. And the church today has people on both sides of that coin, just like Corinth had. Some people, maybe even here today, are like, I am not subject to what you think the Bible says. I can do what I want. I want Jesus to save me, but I'm not necessarily asking Jesus to lead me in every area of my life. Others are constantly both self-righteous and insecure. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't swear, I don't work on Sundays, I don't go out, I don't watch TV. I'm constantly praying and fasting, all the while begging, please God, accept me. That's not what a relationship with Jesus looks like. 
neither of these are the Gospels. So here at the start of 1 Corinthians 7, as Paul gets into a few practicalities around marriage and around sexual relationships, that, that's super important context for us to know in order to understand what this chapter is saying. So if you have your Bibles here, you can go to 1 Corinthians 7. But in this chapter, Paul actually switches from speaking generally about relationships and responding to reports that he's heard to actually addressing the questions and the arguments that they were making against Paul in their previous letter to him. So he, he starts off by saying this in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So they wrote to him. They were challenging some of the things he was saying. And this is what they wrote. He quotes them here. See, this is so important to understand what's happening because otherwise you could completely miss this scripture. They were saying to Paul, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Like I can imagine Paul getting their letter going, and they're saying to Paul, hey, Paul, yeah, it's not good for a man. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And him going, what? Like, can we go back to Genesis? God said it is not good that man be alone. And so he made a suitable helper. And guess what? They were naked and they were not ashamed. And they held fast to one another and they become one flesh. All of that speaks of marriage and sexual intimacy, right? You don't have to go far. Just look at the anatomy of a man and an anatomy of a woman to know that these pieces, it's like a puzzle piece, they fit together, right? Sorry for the image. <laughs> but it's what we're talking about today. That's how God made it. How could you come and say it's not good? It's not good that man should have relations with a woman. Where do you get this stuff from, Corinth? God declared right at the beginning of creation that woman is a suitable partner for man and that they're supposed to hold fast to one another. Now the church in Corinth is doing what the world always, it cannot help but do this. What the world always does with sex and with marriage and with relationships and with God's intentions is that it warps it. That's literally the meaning of the word perversion. It perverts something that is holy, something that is good, something that God intended to bless, to be an important part of a marriage relationship. The world comes, twists it, breaks it, destroys it to their own destruction. It doesn't help them. All of their philosophies lead to brokenness. And we know this. this is not, I've done enough pastoral counseling in my 15, 20 years of being a pastor to know exactly the damage that this leads to. The first thing that the world messes up when it rejects God, in the beginning God, the first thing that it does when it rejects that is that it warps human relationships and sexual relationships. Romans 1, to 24 tells us this. Paul writes, he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, they were focused on this earth they're swapping immortality and eternity for temporal created things. Therefore, verse 24 says, God gave them up. In other words, he let them have their way. You see, God isn't just going to step in and say, no, I'm going to put an end to this. No, God gives us free will. And sometimes God allows us to have what we told him we wanted. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity What's the first thing that happens when they reject God? The dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. They dishonor their own value, their own worth. The moment you reject God, what's, when, when, when God, man's relationship with God was broken at the fall of man in the book of Genesis chapter 3, what's the first result? Cain kills Abel. Our relationship with God breaks down, our relationship with each other breaks down. That's what happens. That's what we do. So the world completely warps marriage and misunderstands the meaning and power of sex. And when the culture of the world then infiltrates the church, our thinking about these matters becomes corrupt. And it leads us to brokenness, a brokenness that God never intended for our lives. Did you know that God 
that Jesus said, I have come to give you life and life to the full, an abundant life, a full life, a blessed life. He doesn't want us to live in brokenness. So Paul is quoting the, you know, the words of Corinth back to them saying, you're saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And what the church was actually saying, for context there, they were saying even within marriage, people should abstain from sex. How warped is that? They were actually believing in Corinth that if you were going to be the spiritual, self-righteous, holy person, then marriage is somehow to do with the material world, and we're rejecting all of that. And so even within marriage, we will abstain from one another as married couples. And if we can't abstain, we should get divorced. That's what they were saying. And then at the same time, they were saying, and you know what? If we need some sexual fulfillment, it's okay. We've always got the temple prostitutes. Because what we do in the body doesn't matter anyways. That's how warped it was. That's why Paul's pretty angry when he writes this letter. That's why there's this biting sarcasm in here. Because they had fully come to believe that you should try and abstain from sex within marriage. But then if you need a, you know, just a, a quick bit of relief, then there's always a prostitute you can go and see in that city. Corinth is ultimately saying this. After all, in the new age, we have already entered by, that we've already entered by the Spirit. There is neither marrying nor giving in marriage. Why should we not be as the angels now? Besides, since the body counts for nothing, if some wish to fulfill physical needs, they are always the prostitutes. That's what they were thinking. So we should abstain from sex because we're beyond that. But if we need something, we can go to a prostitute since the body doesn't count for anything. Here's a common problem. You're like, that's crazy. That's Corinth. That's long ago. Nobody here believes that. But here's a common problem how that applies and is relevant to our church and every church right now. The people that shouldn't be having sex because they understand the value of it and they want to honor God with their bodies until the point of marriage and that covenant, the people that shouldn't be having sex are having sex. And the people that are married that should be having sex are not. Some of the guys are like, amen. We're like, oh, Corinth, so warped. We're the exact same. A lot of guys will turn to pornography way quicker than they will turn to their own wives. Oh, it's okay if, I, if my wife doesn't fulfill my needs. I'll just, and, 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 you know, pornography is like the entry level. It gets far worse from there. Infidelity and adultery and all of those kinds of things. So Paul starts by addressing sex within marriage. In verse 2, he says this, he says, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill, I love the scripture, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations. Unless you agree to refrain for, from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourself more completely to prayer, I'm yet to meet that couple. I'm yet to meet the couple that's like, you know what? We would love to be intimate right now, but let's give ourselves to prayer. Please come and speak to me if that's you after the service because I think you should preach next Sunday. But even when it comes to prayer, and intimacy with God, and being able to talk to God, and fellowship with God, even when it comes to a commitment to prayer. Paul says, limit how long you would do that for. He says, afterward, you should come together again, so that Satan will not be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You see, that, that is the healthy expression, but once we start abstaining in marriage, we start partaking outside in various forms. And so the only time when a husband and wife should be keeping themselves from each other is when they've decided that they're going to commit that time that they were going to be having sex to prayer, which is fine. But then get back together after the prayer, right? Amen. Let's go, right? I'm just saying what the Bible says. Just saying what the Bible says. So married couples, sex is a gift. Sex is a gift. It's a glue that God has given you to be bonded and, and bound together 
to the husband or the wife that you are in covenant with, if your relationship is constantly frayed, maybe that's one of the reasons. Maybe it's because you no longer surrender your bodies to one another to serve and love each other physically. It's an expression of what's happening on the inside. We're living from the inside out. So if you love your husband, if you love your wife, have sex with them. Because that's the expression. It's a glue that will bind your relationship together and strengthen your covenant with each other. Marriage is a covenant that we commit ourselves, within which we commit ourselves to each other. We make a promise. And according to Scripture, it's not right. Whereas Corinth was saying it's not right that a man should have sex with a woman, the Scriptures actually say it's not right that you shouldn't if that person is your husband or your wife. That's what's not right. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to speak to the ladies And then, gents, it's going to be your turn, all right? Bear with me. Today's going to get real. All right. So, ladies, I'm going to address you first. In all my years of pastoral counseling, and I was blessed enough to, you know, be a pastor from a young age, I have done countless amounts of marriage counseling where I've sat with couples where relationships are on the rocks or there's, at the very least, a lot of brokenness there, okay? In all my years, I've done a lot of that. And this phrase... I have heard many times coming forth from the wives, coming from the ladies. Something along these lines. If he, my husband, wants to have sex with me, he needs to work for it. Right? He needs to, I I literally had one person tell me this one day. He needs to buy me flowers in the morning. He needs to make me breakfast. He needs to serve me all day. And then if he plays his cards right, I'll give him sex. That's literally the the phrasing that somebody gave. I will give him sex if he's done all of these things. So for anybody who's ever thought that way, ladies, I just want to say this. You are not a prostitute. Do not make your husband pay for sex. The gents are clapping. They're like, thank you, Jesus. Guys, your turn's coming up. You're not giving him sex, right? You're engaged in a supernatural act of covenant and unity that should be honored by your presence, your affection, and your attitude in those moments. Do not make it easier for your husband to turn to pornography than to turn to his wife. Don't do that. You're you're undermining your marriage. Guys, your turn. Maybe the reason why your wife is making you pay for sex is because she just wants to feel like you actually love her. That you actually desire to connect with her as a person. That you actually care about what's happening in her heart that you actually want to have that kind of intimacy and fellowship with her and that you're not just trying to get a quick fix. This is why I believe intuitively wives often put the brakes on and go, no, 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 we're not going to rush into this because I need to know that you're still committed to me as a person and not just to my body. And all the ladies said, amen, amen. If we truly followed what the Bible said in the book of Ephesians, where it tells us that husbands should love their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Like Jesus literally died for his church, for his people. If we loved, gents, our wives the way that Jesus loves the church, I promise you there will be no shortage of sex. I promise you that a natural outflow of that relationship and the health of that love would be the desire to be intimate. So again, we can't just fix things on the outside. We need to start with what's happening inside of the relationship, what's happening inside of our attitudes towards our husbands and our wives. And I also want to say to the guys that turning to pornography because you feel that your wife has disappointed you sexually is still not okay. When Paul writes about fleeing sexual immorality in chapter 6 that we covered last week, 
Sexual immorality is the word pornea, literally where we get the word pornography from, all forms of sexual immorality. So it's not okay. We're called to honor our wives because your body belongs to her. That's possibly the second most quoted scripture in my house. Just kidding. (laughs) A more accurate translation of 1 Corinthians 7, 4 says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And for our critical theory, cultural world right now, everybody's like, what? Sacrilege. My body's my body. This belongs to me. You can, you know, they're actually talking about, even within marriage, levels of consent where you have to, is it okay if I touch your hair? Okay, cool. Is it okay if I touch your shoulder? Okay, cool. Is it okay if, if I touch your arm? Literally every single touch needs some consent. I heard somebody saying that's like a certain paradigm where the closer you get, the further you are, right? It's just never going to end up in a healthy sexual relationship. Actually, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. You were bought with a price. And what God has instructed us to do with our bodies is honor our husbands and our wives, to love them using the physical bodies that he has given us. Before I move on to the unmarried people, I want to quickly say, married people, this is a commitment. This, this sexual relationship, this honoring of each other with your bodies is a commitment based on a value. You value your husband. You value your wife. You value your relationship. And therefore, you commit to doing this. So I am under no illusions that all husbands and wives will always be in the mood. But some of you are like, in some magic world, we're always in the mood. No. Often you'd be tired. Oftentimes, you know, and that's a conversation that you can have. But even if you don't feel like it, a commitment based on the value says that even when I don't feel like it, I'm willing to try and get there. The attitude is, I'm willing to try even if I don't feel it. Right? We lead from the inside out, not from what we feel inwards. And that is a recipe for a good relationship. Why? Because you love your spouse. That's the value. The church in Corinth had gotten it so warped that they started thinking that sex is a bad thing, even in marriage. And Paul responds by saying that we're to honor our marriages and not separate, even if you are married to an unbeliever, he says at one point, do not initiate divorce. You don't know what God might do in that relationship. He kind of concedes that if you're married to an unbeliever and they come to you and they say, I don't want any part of this relationship, then there's nothing that you can do. But when you are, when that person doesn't initiate divorce, if you were saved after you got married, then stay with them and honor your husband honor your wife. All right. To the unmarried. 1 Corinthians 7, 8 to 9, Paul writes, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. You're like, no, Jesus, no. Please, Lord. Please, Lord. But if they cannot exercise self-control, and this is a gift, it's not just, okay, you know, I've got self-control. They should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul himself, the reason why he says this thing, because Paul himself is unmarried. And God has actually gifted him to remain unmarried. And he prefers it because it means, he actually says in one point in this chapter, like when you get married, logistics, right? You're anxious about many things to do with just your wife and relationships and arguments and, and you know, all kinds of things. So he says he'd rather spare himself and everybody else that if you can, if you feel that God has gifted you to be single for a lifetime and you, you're, the only logistic that you have to worry about is serving God, hey, then that's, that's awesome. That's obviously Paul's personal preference, which is why in that chapter he says, I say, not the Lord. It's not like God is giving a command that you should try and stay single. He's just saying that's my preference because I want to serve God with all the time and I don't want to be caught up or slowed down by marriage relationship. But as much as Paul was single, Peter was married. Peter had to factor all of that in. So he quickly adds that this isn't for everyone. In fact, in verse 7, he says, I wish that all were as I am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So firstly, what that tells us married people is that it is possible 
to hold off on having sex until you're married. If Paul could do it for all of his life, I promise you, God can grace you and give you the ability to not do it until you're married, right? You can do that. Don't lie to yourself. Don't let the world lie to you. My wife, she'd hate that I say this, but she's a perfect example of this. Until I came along, she was single for five years and held off. Didn't chase anything cheap because she had made a commitment in her heart that she wanted exactly what God had for and the fullness of that. The full picture of what it means. And I'm so grateful that was me. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus, letting it be me. So what I want to say to unmarried people is don't sell yourself short here. If you have the desire to be married, then trust God with that desire. And in the same way that married couples honor their husbands and their wives by remaining faithful to them and not seeking sexual fulfillment outside of marriage, You as an unmarried person are already doing the same. By refusing to just have multiple sexual partners and kind of casual flings that actually are not casual or informal at all because they bind your spirit to another spirit. How about you honor your future husband and your future wife so that when you meet that person, you don't have to bring along into the marriage a whole bunch of baggage. It says, oh, yeah, sorry, the last three years have been a little rough. But now it's you. I'm sorry for my, please, I'm not this blunt every Sunday, just so that everybody knows. If you're a visitor here, I'm just trying to be faithful to Scripture. I'm really not trying to upset anybody. But this is so important. Honor your future husband and your future wife with the body that you have now. And trust God that he is doing things in you now that will allow you to experience the fullness of what he has planned for you then. It's vision, it's foresight, it's trusting in God. I'm going to land with this. Paul comes back to the root issue here. He comes back to what the main problem was with Corinth thinking, where they thought that either asceticism or or severe religious discipline is what was going to make them right with God, and that's why they're messing their relationships up. So at one point, you'll see in that chapter, he addresses circumcision, which was an outward sign of an inward commitment to righteousness or an inward righteousness. That's what the Bible tells us. Abraham's circumcision and the circumcision of the people of Israel was only an outward sign of an inward righteousness they had received because of faith in God. So Paul addresses this and he says, in, in the context of sex, which is, which is strangely connected but also weird, Uh, where he talks about circumcision and he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accounts for anything. In other words, it's not about the outside making you righteous, but it's about what you believe on the inside. In other words, once you know that you belong to God, that changes what you do on the outside. We don't make ourselves holy on the outside. We are holy on the inside and then we act holy on the outside. So don't kick the car door to fix the engine. Let God transform the engine, and you'll find that being able to withhold, being able to live holy, being able to live righteous is a natural outflow of His grace in your life. In chapter 8, Paul speaks about food offered to idols, and he speaks about how people thought that if they ate this food that was prepared for an idol, that it could somehow corrupt them, that it could somehow rob them of their righteousness. And he says, those gods... I love how Paul says this. Those gods don't even really exist. So first of all, it's stupid for you to think that something that happens on the outside can rob you of your righteousness on the inside. And you know, I think that's so important for everybody here who has messed up sexually, which I would hazard a guess is probably all of us. Because what he's saying is is that your righteousness and your relationship with God and your walk with Jesus and your standing before the throne of God is not impacted by the mistakes that you've made even if you made that mistake yesterday. There's still consequences in the natural. You'll still experience the brokenness of relationships that aren't functioning the way they should. But God does not condemn. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. I shouldn't have paused after condemn. Um, No condemnation. Someone fired today. For those who are in Christ Jesus. 
There is no condemnation. There's no God's putting you out and he's saying, no, you, you messed up, you're out. You've broken your relationship with me. No, if your faith is in Jesus and you have a heart that says, God, I am sorry for what I've done and I want to I walk with you. The Bible says we have an advocate in heaven that pleads our case because Jesus has already died for our sins. Only I would say to you what Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery. He said, does no one here condemn you? Well, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. The words of Jesus. You now have the grace of God to live according to what God has called us to live according to. We don't worship statues. We don't live according to the culture of this world. We don't rely on random religious rules to make us right with God. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 and 19 to 20, I want to read as my final scripture. He says, but you were washed. This is your identity. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God and honor your spouse, whether present or future spouse, with your body. Why? So that you can be holy? No, because you already are holy. Because that's our identity. And we live from that reality. Now I know that this is an area we've all developed our own personal views and we've all adjusted God's word slightly here or there. But as disciples and believers, your job is not to listen to me. It's to take the word of God and surrender to it and allow it to speak to you, shape you, mold you, deliver you, declare your identity so that according to that identity and not some identity you fashioned in the likeness of mere man or mere created things, you can live a truly from the inside out righteous life, which is what God has for all of us. And if you struggle and if you fall and if you stumble, God's grace is there to pick us up and to keep us moving in the direction He has for us. Amen? Everybody can breathe a deep sigh of relief. That was a heavy one today. But we know that God is working in our hearts. Won't you stand with me this morning as we pray?